This is the Made It in Music Podcast, show 126. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full-time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. Hi, this is Seth Mosley, host of the Made It in Music podcast, and we've got a good one today. Just one more episode coming after this one on season one, and then we'll be taking a brief hiatus before season two. But today we've got Nick Beret and Brian Ward of proper management. We've gotten actually a lot of feedback from artists wanting to hear more from managers. And what you'll learn in this conversation is that Nick and Brian both started in small roles outside the industry, and now they have managed some of the largest artists and tours in the Christian music industry and outside of Christian music as well. You're also going to find out what it means to be an artist manager and what the true end goal is in the music industry. Uh, One of my favorite moments in this interview is when Nick and Brian break down exactly how to get a meeting with almost anyone in the industry and to survive the vetting process that happens with everyone. The answer will probably surprise you. They also talk about how to go from zero to 1.5 million monthly Spotify listeners with no record label. And yes, they're not speaking as a hypothetical, they are speaking from experience. These are things they've actually helped their artists do. And lastly, Nick and Brian spend a few moments remembering the industry titan Bill Hearn of Capital Christian Music Group, who actually passed away last year. This episode was recorded last year, was very fresh in their minds. So since they're talking about something that had happened last week, kind of disregard that. But still, this is a great moment of them paying homage to one of the leaders in the Christian music industry. But before we jump into this conversation, just wanted to remind you, if you haven't already been to our website, go to fullcirclemusic.com. It'll give you the lowdown on everything that's going on in the world of Full Circle Music, from our production, to our songwriting, to our label, to our publishing company, and to our academy. A lot of you guys are familiar with it, but a lot of you still aren't yet. So take a minute, hop over there, fullcirclemusic.com, browse around for a bit, and we're making some changes on our official FC Music Instagram. For those of you guys who don't know, my beautiful, amazing, talented Swedish wife is taking over the Instagram for a little while, and she has an absolutely amazing eye. So not only will it be looking great, but we are going to be updating way more consistently than we ever have before and hopefully providing you content that will be way more helpful and more interesting and more entertaining than ever before, too. So... If you don't already follow us, follow us on Instagram at at official FC music, as in full circle music. That's at official FC music. But without further ado, let's just jump right into our conversation here at Full Circle Music in Franklin, Tennessee with Brian Ward and Nick Beret. So yeah, we're here today with Nick Beret, this guy, and Brian Ward of Proper Management. Gotten to know you guys uh, fairly well over the last couple of years and just have been blown away by what you're doing. You're very much at the forefront of um, not only management, but marketing and all these new strategies um, in the Christian music world and, and, and even more recently, probably outside of that. Um, so, man, why don't you just start off by telling us, and, and maybe we'll start with Brian and then move on to Nick. What was your step into uh, the music business and what was your kind of like first uh, big break if you had one? Okay. I was working at a bookstore and I didn't know anything about Christian music except Amy Grant. That was, that was really my only exposure to it. And so these sales reps would come into the bookstore and sell us all of the new records that were coming out. And so that's how I started learning about all these different artists And eventually I said, I think I could do that. Um, Glamorous job of driving in your car from North Carolina to Maine and calling on bookstores and selling them things uh, that were coming out. So I did that for about five years. Uh, I gave myself a five-year limit to be on the road. And right at the five-year mark, I was already working for um, 
EMI, now Capital Christian Music Group, selling in the Midwest. And I moved to Nashville to start a phone sales team to sell tooth and nail records, which we were distributing at the time. And so uh, there was about seven or eight of us, and we called on the entire country by our phones. Who were you calling? We would call some of the larger chain stores like a Lifeway or a Family Christian at the time. Um, and then there would be Seth Mosley's Christian Bookstore in somewhere in middle America that uh, wanted... How does he know about that? <laughs> <laughs> they, they had a mission to serve their community, you know, with Christian products and books and whatnot. And, and so... At the time, there was no digital music, of course, so everything was hard copy CD. Um, so I would travel and sell, and then when the artists would come to town, we would do marketing and promotions if they were coming on a tour. And then as time went by, the business changed, and the advent of digital music, and then the account base grew. There was iTunes and what we know today, Spotify and Amazon. So that was kind of how I got started in it, and... Along that journey, did marketing, artist development, tried to learn about publishing, just tried to learn everything around the music business as possible. So were you always interested in more the business side than like being an artist? Absolutely. I mean, I would play at my church or play gigs for fun, but I never wanted to do that full time. It was too hard. <laughs> I, I didn't know if I could pay my rent, <laughs> if I could if try to be a piano player somewhere. So I always enjoyed the business side. And, um, you know, 20 some years doing this, 25 years doing this, people will say, uh, you know, why do you still do it? And, you know, Nick can share some of this too. But I always tell people, we work for artists, we work for producers, we work for all types of business people. But at the end of the day, if I lose sight of who I really work for, which is that family in the 20th row at a show who saved their money, worked hard to bring their family to that show, to have an experience, to get closer to God somehow through this music. And so all the efforts that we do at a label or a management side and producers do with artists, when all of that converges, lights, video, and the Holy Spirit, and God make that connection point to that person, that's what you really work for, for me. Because, you know, there's no, you can't put a value on that. So all of the minutiae, all the hard stuff that you have to do in the music business for that moment is really who I want to work for. Yeah, that's good. Nick, how did you get into it? Um, I, I think where I would start was I was the ultimate fan. Uh, I, I was very, very passionate. Um, music was kind of my window to the world and, um, and Christmas, not Christmas, Christian music in particular was, um, something that, that moved me the way nothing else did, not just musically, but spiritually as well. And so I grew up in South Florida. I'm trying to figure out my faith and, you know, there's, guys on TV who are talking about their faith. I don't really connect with that. And like the crazy televangelist people. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I felt like I could trust these artists. Like they were speaking my vernacular. And so in my bedroom, listening to my vinyl records with my headphones, I was able to view the world differently. And that really resonated with me. So a lot of what Brian's saying that I don't want to kind of glance over that. That passion is what, drives me today. You know, I might not, probably not the best manager, the best marketer, but I would say I, I enjoy it. You know, I'll, I'll, he and I can debate back and forth, but I, I love what I do. Um, and this is a, a business where that will take you pretty far. And, um, and so, um, like Brian said, when I'm working on a project, whether it's a marketing plan or, or putting together a tour, I'm thinking about that family as well. I'm actually thinking about that 14 year old kid in his bedroom who feels like I'm the only one that thinks like this. And then they hear a song that you've produced or that you've written or that, that you've performed and they don't feel so alone. They feel like they have, um, that they have a, a place to belong. So that's really motivating for me. Um, uh, professionally, 
when I graduated from college, I worked at a terrible, terrible record store, and then I worked at a terrible, terrible um, uh, radio station, um, and um, moved to Nashville to work for a producer named Charlie Peacock, totally for free. Was this like an internship, or how did that? Even- no, I, I was. I'd been out of college for three years. So that internships had long gone. This was just he was starting a nonprofit organization for uh, to to serve artists uh, who were passionate about the art and passionate about their faith. Um, it was, it's called the art house and I just volunteered. I was like, I want to be a part of that. Um, then he kind of hired me to just do gopher stuff and little stuff. And, and over five years that evolved into a record label that he launched. And that's really kind of where I found my calling. So that crappy job at the radio station and the record store now God flipped it upside down and it gave me an incredible perspective and experience, you know, that negative experience was now positive. And, um, so it was a little label called Rethink. Uh, Charlie Peacock was on it, Sarah Mason, and this little band from San Diego called Switchfoot. And, um, little, little known band. Little, yeah. And, um, and then, um, that label was acquired by EMI and I was at EMI for 12 years. Mm. So, so when you started working in that quote unquote crappy record store, did you have any idea of the end goal in mind or did you just kind of know, Hey, I want to work in music and this is a job. Me personally, I didn't have the faith to even think that this was possible, that I could meet somebody like you, that I could do this. It it was, I would tell people that I want to work at an ad agency because that felt more achievable or more respectable. Um, Why? Because, like, to say I want to work in the music industry was like saying I want to work on the space shuttle. It just seemed like, all right, good one, you know. And I'm sure there's people listening or watching this podcast that feel the same way of like, well, I can't really feel like God wants me to do that. But if I actually say it out loud, it's just too insane. It's too crazy. And, um, and that was, certainly was my experience. And then, you know, and that's, that's what I love about the community that we're in, uh, not just here in Nashville, but just, professionally that it really is a um a creative community that encourages dreamers and um and uh and so that was man when i moved here and was around other people that also had crazy crazy dreams and they were being affirmed um that was incredibly inspiring i want to ask you a little bit of a personal question hopefully it's okay um but what did your like what did your parents do growing up i guess that's not that personal but what, what did your parents do growing up my father was a blue collar worker, drove trucks, forklifts, you know, warehouse manager kind of thing. My mom worked for the U.S. government from the time she graduated high school to the day she retired, doing budgets and trying to keep the government in, in business <laughs> kind of thing. So they were very musical. My family's, especially my father's side was musical all the way back to his great grandfather. They would make records for Rounder. Um, a lot of more bluegrass kind of stuff. And they played at silent movies. I mean, so that's where I kind of got the bug for music was from my grandfather, uh, just watching him on the stage and watching him entertain people. And I thought, I want to do that too. So I started at five, but I knew very early it was not going to work for me to be on the stage. How so. did you know that? Did you just feel like you weren't having great opportunities or people were like, Brian, you suck, <laughs> sit down, that kind of thing? Well, what was funny, um, even at five, see, my grandfather, he, he would sing songs about you know partying and drinking and this kind of thing. So he would teach me those songs. So at five, I'm on stage singing about you know drinking whiskey. And everybody was laughing, you know, at me. At least I thought they were laughing at me. They were laughing at what I was singing about. Here's this five-year-old kid singing, singing about whiskey songs. And I'm like, they're laughing at me. I don't want to do this. He's like, get back out there. They're just laughing at the song. So I think, though, I mean, I've always played music, but I just never felt that that was my calling to, to be the front person in a band. Or I, I love the support role. So I love playing for other people and helping make the best product or whatever, whatever it needs. And, and that's a role that I've carried into a career at music business is now in management. We always say our boss is the artist. We work for you. <clears throat> you know, you don't work for us. 
I want to support what your mission is because I, I believe in what you're doing and I see the impact on people's lives. Um, even at labels, you are in a sense a support role. You might be able to direct and, you know, guide an artist's career, help them make decisions, but you really are a support role. So I've always loved that. And it's the perfect job for me to be with music, be with creatives in a very supportive community, like you said. Um, but also know I love being the guy backstage watching it all sure. come together. Sure. What about you? Did you have a, you know, five years old on stage singing about whiskey experience or no? What was your family like uh, growing up? My, my father was college football coach, uh, was, uh, in the military and was an engineer for Pratt Whitney. Aircraft. Which college? Uh, University of Missouri okay. in Rolla. Yeah. Um, and, um, but he was an engineer. And so, um, so even though my mother was, there was always music in the house, Broadway musicals and uh, a lot of Broadway musicals and, um, just be, you know, the music of, of the day or at least their day, you know, so to, to have a career, like my father, it, it, when I said I was interested in music, it was like, I want to sell balloons. You know, I mean, it just didn't, he didn't, he didn't. You know, God love him. I mean, he, he was so, you know, it's like to him, music was, was like it, who would pay for music? Like there's no, you know, I, I think he would go to the guy on the street corner, you know, or, you know, the, the, the Warner Brothers, uh, Looney Tunes cartoon of the guy who finds the frog, you know, it was just like, so why would you want a career? In was that? there a moment that you were sitting across from the table and said, dad, I think I want to do music and, did he, did, like, what was the reaction, or did, was there not ever a moment like that? Well, I think they'd heard me talk. I'd mentioned Charlie Peacock before. That they'd heard me talk about Charlie Peacock a lot and quote him a lot. And so, when I was moving to help him, um, moved to Nashville to help him start this nonprofit organization, that gave credibility and the fact that he was able to support a family. <laughs> you know, I, he literally it, it was it was uh, like again like. I want to make paper airplanes for a living. You know, like my dad's like, well, that's great, but you, nobody can make a living off of music. He, it was, again, he was an engineer. It was completely foreign to him. And I grew, I grew up in South Florida. So it was like, nobody was a professional musician. You know, maybe there were a handful, but you worked at a theme park or on a cruise ship or something. Yeah. You know, there but, was no music industry. The, prior to the Charlie Peacock thing, was there a resistance from, from your family to, to get into it? I remember, this is funny. I remember telling my dad, Hey, I'm going to move to Nashville and work for this Grammy award winning producer and my hero and all that. And he was like, Oh, that's great. He goes, uh, but hey, I got a friend at work. His son, um, uh, does the forklifts at Costco and, uh, they make $10 an hour. You might want to think about, you know, I think he just, I think he just didn't want me to be a burden to society. So, um, but near the end of his life, I think he saw like, Oh, okay. There actually is a some sort of financial structure. There's a transaction of revenue that's happening. You can actually make a living at this. So, so, so when you when you were worked uh, went to work for Charlie Peacock for free. I mean, how did you like? How did that? How was that even possible? Like, how did you live? Well, um, I was single, and I know it's shocker. Didn't have a girlfriend. Um, so. <laughs> So, so I don't want to make it like I was, it was this huge leap of faith. I mean, there was nothing that 400 bucks couldn't fix. Um, but the, uh, but, uh, I worked at a, at a hotel across the street from the Opryland Hotel. I'd work nights, 11 o'clock at night to seven in the morning. So I just had to figure out when I needed to sleep. Uh, I mean, now like it's, like, there's no way my body could handle that, but it, you know, I also, it was so exciting. So I, in, in, I want to make sure I protect Charlie. Like I uh, volunteered, um, and then after seven, my goal was if I'm so helpful, he'll see some value. And so after seven months of you know helping out, like a few times a week, he did take me on full full time. So man, that that's huge right there. And I don't want to just glance over that fact because I think a lot of people. I mean, you you said this was about three years after you graduated from yeah. college. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people would probably be nowadays of the mindset of, man, you get graduate with a college degree and then you should just get the job or get hired. Now, I, I think there's something very profound in the fact that you just knew 
that, hey, if I can go and just add value and give and give and give, hopefully he'll recognize that. Can you talk about the, like, how did you, how did you even know to think like that? Well, yeah. I, I mean, first of all, it was, um, it, when Charlie said, Hey, well, why don't you come, uh, move to Nashville? I'm doing this thing. You could, it'd be great to help out. That was, uh, yeah, again, turning this into a, the Charlie Peacock podcast. Hey, it, we're, we're big fans of Charlie yeah, Peacock. Yeah. If he's listening. I mean, that would be like, that was a bigger deal to me than Bono saying that. So it was so shocking. It was such a, you know, it, it was such God putting, out of out of left field, got putting an opportunity right right in my hand, so it couldn't be denied. It was so miraculous. And Charlie is not a flaky guy, so there was times or a few a few years later, he was like, "Can I? Why did I say that to you? Why did I say I never say that to people? Like, hey, come come and move." And I'm like, "I don't I don't know, you know." So so it was you know I felt like man, I'm I don't know what my skill set is, but I know I can help this person and it all worked out. But I would say this to, to that, that young person that's like waiting for that perfect job opportunity and the perfect salary, particularly if you're looking for an on-ramp into the music industry, sometimes that happens. It really does. Sometimes that happens. But I would say most of the time your on-ramp is via a different route. And a lot of it, you do have to kind of prove that, you have a servant's heart. You have to prove that there's a level of kindness, uh, a work ethic, and all those things. Um, I do think there's kind of a Darwinian process to this industry where, with all due respect to the people listening to this, there's a lot of weird people that want to get involved in this industry or be close to the artists for me, maybe motives they're not even aware of, but are inconsistent with the goals at hand. So, so I do feel like there is a, a vetting process that kind of comes with that. So internships, volunteering, again, some of this entitled would call that slave labor, but I do think there's an appropriate time for a season of that. Yeah. And man, it, honestly, you, at the time, it doesn't sound like you would have ever, ever thought of it like that. I mean, you were working for one of your heroes, right? That, And I think that's something that I've noticed with a lot of people that kind of come through, whether it's one of our academies and or uh, people that do college internships with us. I think there's a mentality nowadays that just does not understand the value of uh, mentorship. Like it's more coming in, hey, what can I offer you? Like what, what can, what can, um, you learn from me? Like it sounds like your mentality back then was like, this guy has been there, done that. He knows like he's where I want to be essentially. Yeah. So you had a high respect for that. Well, and also uh, there was a value. If if sometimes people say, what's the most important skill set? necessary to do artist management or to work at a record label or all that. And, you know, Charlie Peacock's answer is, oh, that's easy. It's kindness, which is actually really true. Mm -hmm. But the other element is, how do you talk to an artist? How do you, how do you make an artist feel comfortable? Um, You know, you can't tell an artist what to do, but at the same time, you also can't say, yeah, whatever you want, because that comes across passive. So how do you, in your own skin, talk to an artist where they feel safe, encouraged, comfortable, um, challenged. That's really tricky. And so to get to see somebody like Charlie do that at a level where, whether it's a guitar player that's struggling with uh, a part in a studio or where he's pushing a song lyrically in a direction that maybe the artist, I mean, I was there when he made John Foreman of Switchfoot rewrite a song 36 times, a lyric because he saw something in John of you are a great lyricist. And so he kept pushing, pushing, pushing. Whereas if he didn't see that, he would just kind of probably let the second or third draft be the final. So Brian, I'd love to, I'd love to jump over to you a little bit. So you, you had worked in the, in the label system for a while and, and now transitioned into management. What, what was the um, impetus behind that? Well, uh, <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it just happens, <laughs> you know, you just, an opportunity's here. But I think for me, I, I started in sales, which, you know, some people view sales as the bane of the uh, business. 
you know, Carl, you're a car salesman guy schlepping CDs. I, I never viewed it that way, but that's where I got my start. And I wanted to learn as much as I can because sales is really a relationship and you're trying to build one. This isn't like a carnival where you set up your tent, you grab tickets and you just go to the next town. You have to build relationships with your accounts because you also represent the artist. I'm not just trying to make commission and make money. I represent a label, an artist, their management. And so you want to have some integrity uh, when you represent that. Um, I think it, someone gave me some great advice when I was at um, EMI Capital, which was the ladder to success does not go this way. You know, like you see that in, well, I started in the mail room and I worked my way up, you know, and now I'm the CEO. It was really, the advice was, it's going to look like this. You're moving up, but you're moving all in different places and you're gathering information, you're gathering knowledge, you're building relationships. So this person said, when you come to town for a meeting with the company, don't sit with the guys that do the same job as you do. Go ask the person, hey, you work in publishing. Give me a, I'd love to take you out to a coffee or a lunch. And man, tell me the one-on-one. How does publishing work? Man, can we park there? Because we get those messages all the time. And publishers, I'm sure, get those messages all the time. How does somebody approach that? And like, is there a magic word that you have to say to get somebody to take you out to coffee? Or like, how do you even? Yeah, do you want to answer? <clears throat> I feel like... The magic word is, I really like to pick your brain. Could I buy you coffee? And I'll kind of almost meet with anybody. Uh, I, I do it on my time where I'm like, hey, let's get together in three weeks. So there's a lack of urgency. And if the person can't wait like three weeks, then I, that's, a, again, a little bit of a vetting process for me. But if but if they can wait when, when it's convenient for me, then yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I, I feel like... With very rare exception, almost anyone in this industry, they might, if they have the time, and if you're patient, you could probably get a meeting with them. I mean, that is not that tricky. This is a an industry where people leave the door open behind them um, because we were all in that situation. Sure, I think it's the approach you take if you're trying to get into the to the music business. People can kind of vet you out and smell a rat pretty quickly. You know, when we would interview people for the record label, in about five minutes, I could tell they're a songwriter. They're just wanting this, you know, marketing gig so they can go pitch their songs to the publishing department. It's like, no thanks. Because there's a, there's an element of, of servanthood, I guess is a word to say that, hey, I, I want to come with humbleness and servanthood to learn how this all fits together. I'm not just here to push my own agenda. You know, um, and you, you can just smell it out so fast. And when you, so my approach would be to tell someone, you know, come with an, come with open hands, come with an open heart, come with humility that it's not necessarily about you at the time. You need to amass uh, a wealth of knowledge. So I asked for the publisher and I got the meeting, I think in three weeks and, you know, I learned, okay. Publishing is probably not something that I have a deep passion for, but I do need to know about it if I want to advance and develop in my career like that guy told me, which is this way. So then I would take a meeting with a marketing uh, director and go, hey, how does that work? And then you start to find some of the skills I had as a sales guy on the road, which is really transferring passion about an artist or a project that could work in marketing. Now the skills may be a little different. So I need to learn those and sit at the feet of masters like Nick and which I did and try to learn what are, what are some of the tools that, and then, okay, marketing. Now let's go over and talk to the A&R guy. How do records get made? Cause they're in the creative process. They're talking to the artist back to your point. How, if you're going to work with an artist, you kind of have to know how a creative thinks and you can't just sell them your idea. You can't just tell them your idea. You have to one respect. It's not your art. It's theirs. 
and but you you can bring something of value to them to help that either be bigger or collaboration you know i should put you with this person because they're trying to do the same thing you are so it's just learn all you can around multiple areas and you might find hey i was a sales guy but man i have a passion for songwriters i love that part of the business so i'm going to uh you know deep dive into that and i'm going to take a meeting with another publisher if they'll give it to me I think if you ask a lot of publishers in town, they didn't start out in publishing, but they found they had a coffee or a lunch with someone and found, I have a passion for that. I'm going to learn about it. Yeah. It's good. good. Can we talk yeah, about yeah. other qualities when you're trying to sniff out a rat? Yeah. Hey, that's <laughs> sure. super this is helpful. Like, I'm, this is really it's good. Okay. It's good stuff. To me, what I look for is like if somebody knows it all and I'm an expert and I've got the music industry figured out. I don't care if they've been doing this 30 years or if they just graduated from college or if they just worked with some indie band in their hometown. I know they're a rat because I'm doing this. I'm not a total idiot, but man, I don't have it figured out. You know, we're in an incredible time in this industry, an extraordinary time where we are learning, we are learning, this is why we're doing this. We're learning new things, new rules, new uh, tools. And so I feel that, I certainly don't feel like I'm an expert. I have never, ever presented myself on any level, um, particularly in this new model, we're all learning this. Um, and if I can get something, uh, uh, an insight from you or from you or from a blog or whatever, I will take it. And so I, d- I do feel like when someone's trying to get in the industry and they're leading with, um, I'm right. Um, even though that doesn't sound, you know, uh, it sounds counterintuitive, but if you're leading with humility, because whatever the rules are, whatever sc- uh, skill set you have right now, it will change very fast. You might be the expert for the next 18 months. I'm kind of not kidding because it changes so fast. Well, man, I'd love to hit on that because one of the things that I've been just fascinated watching from a periphery, you know, our, our lane as a production company over the last several years has been producing and writing music that gets played on radio. Now, I saw you building this thing out of the corner of my eye where you're working with these people that have nothing to do with radio, yet they're selling out thousand person rooms and putting on fan appreciation events, one one of which I was at with, with one of your bands, and building really YouTube influencers. Can can you Talk about how, how did how did that even happen? Like, what was the well? That, was there a master plan, or was it just something you kind of backed into? Um, well, a f- few things. Just, uh, frame a little context. Um, prior to the last few years, there really was one model. There was one way to do things really well. I mean, there were a few exceptions, but they were outliers in my opinion. Can you explain that model? Yeah. If you wanted to have, there was a correct way to set up an album release. There was a correct way to promote a single. There was a a correct way to time publicity and all of that. And there were rules that were in place that were pretty helpful and wise. And so we were rewarded because we learned the rules from somebody else, uh, the way to do things because there was a way to do things. And you could be creative within that, but in that, this is the way that you make a record. This is the way you market a record. This is the way you distribute a record. And, um, so if you're new to the industry, you're starting at the bottom of the uh, totem pole because you've got to learn all the rules that we've learned over the last few years. That's how we started. What's beautiful now is in that, and that model, that traditional record label model is still vibrant, still alive. It is not dead. You know, it is, and, and we are living at every single day. But what's beautiful is that there's now these new models that are popping up. So in the case of the artists that you were talking about, Anthem Lights, that you've done production work for, uh, and another group that we work with, Cimarelli, what's beautiful is our job has not been how to follow the rules. The rules that I look at are, I have an artist and I have a consumer, and how do I connect them? And if radio is a part of that, that is awesome. 
but maybe radio doesn't have to be part of that. Can I, how can I best reach that consumer? What does the consumer want? Do they want one album of 10 songs every 18 to 24 months? Or would they prefer to have a song a week, a song every two weeks? Do they want a music video with every song? How do they, how are they consuming? And so this has been such an exciting time in my career of learning more information. And we also have consumer data of, of who is consuming this music, when they consume it, where they're consuming it, that we're able to, you know, depending on the artist, they're able to adjust to the, the, the artist's needs. So I don't want to oversimplify it, but it really is that simple. And, and YouTube has been an amazing tool, Spotify even more so that, um, and so, I mean, literally right before I just got a text right before and Anthem Lights just crossed 1.5 million monthly listeners on Spotify today. So that is amazing. And, and are, and they're just so everybody know, I mean, there's no, record deal there right no they're they are the they are the record company so i am was their manager or am their manager when they were on a record deal help them get a record deal uh but now they have a record label and i run that record label for them they're my ceo and um and so we're providing label services to make sure the album's distributed uh, that it's on Spotify, iTunes, that that's being monetized properly. It's, it's incredibly exciting. And again, it's, it's, I'm not saying this, the old model's dead, but there's a very, very viable new model that's emerged that for the artist is very financially rewarding. And also on a personal level, emotional level, artistic level and spiritual level, they feel like they're making a, a connection that maybe they couldn't if they were using a traditional model. Yeah, that's unbelievable. I mean, I know a ton of signed artists on major labels that aren't even having those type of numbers. So, I mean, can you walk us through, like, I mean, just some strategy between zero and 1.5 million monthly listeners? I mean, how, how long of a journey has that been? What, eight years? <laughs> or, you yeah, know, eight, so, eight years for them, sure. So, um, but um, I will say... Uh, was gonna this is mainly to the artists that are listening and watching this you often don't get to choose who your audience is you might be targeting the people at the cool lunch table at high school but it might be the cheerleaders that are that like your music more you don't get to choose and so uh i'm the genius everyone's like oh man that anthem light stuff is so amazing i'm like yeah well, keep in mind i'm the genius genius that said hey we should be on a traditional label you know that was <laughs> so that was on you, my watch so you were pushing for that well yeah well, there was an opportunity and that at the time in 2009 2010 that was incredibly logical you know so i don't want to take too much credit that was you know, that was on my tenure as well. Uh, and we, you know, we did the traditional thing. Radio was key. They toured like crazy. We're on the rock and worship road show, newsboys tour, the story tour, all, you know, did every, we checked off every box and, um, it was good. It was decent. And the metaphor I used all day long is it's Michael Jordan playing baseball. There's nothing wrong with Michael Jordan. There's nothing wrong with baseball. It just wasn't the match. I mean, Michael Jordan's a better baseball player than the three of us. But man, when he plays basketball, he's the world's greatest. And when Anthem Lights switch from a traditional model uh, to this this new influencer model, it just worked. And they actually did that while they were, they were on Providence. So their YouTube numbers and social numbers were insane when they were on a traditional label. It's just you know so it didn't maybe it, it was 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 that more from their internal i guess building that yeah it, it was it was not, not to take you know take credit away from the label system because like you said it's there's still power to it but what were they doing that was different than every other artist on that um i'm trying to my recollection was rather than us just being passive and just well i guess we'll just wait for the weekly radio report of like what can we do I hate feeling like a victim where, and so some of it wasn't done uh, out of um, uh, anxiousness. It was just, what can we do? And so we paid, or the group paid for some videos while they were still in Provident and they were getting incredible traction. I mean, m 
millions of views. And these were like cover videos, right? Cover videos uh, and some original stuff too. So, but but it was um, the reason that a lot of these influencers use so many covers uh, is they, um, for example, Anthem Lights and Cimarelli both have two albums, full albums worth of original material out in 2017, which is extraordinary. Yeah, it's incredible. Incredible. But they need even more content. The audience wants even more. And you can only write, you know, 10, 15, 20 songs people actually want to hear a year, you know, unless you're Elvis Costello and you could write a song every day or whatever. But so that's why the covers, it, it just fills in the need. The metaphor that I use a lot is, um, what if you had, um, a five minute slot on Jimmy Fallon every week, no matter what you get, you get a shot. So one week you need to do an original song, but what are you going to do next week? Oh, we don't have another original song. Well, okay, we'll do a cover. Okay, great. And that's uh, television. I use that metaphor a lot because I feel like that's how a lot of consumers are consuming music. Yeah. It's different than a traditional model. Yeah, I think, I mean, I wasn't, I was there when they were on a major label system and then watched as they've, moved into their current model. What impresses me is that, <clears throat> excuse me, you can, in a traditional model, you have a radio single and you may have one a year. That's your only shot because it takes six, seven, eight months for the trajectory to start and all the stations and crest hopefully and then come down yeah we've been on singles that have peaked at you at week 54 yeah it's, it's crazy so now if that doesn't work for some reason you're 20 weeks in and it's just it's okay but it's not very successful you have to wait probably another 20 weeks before you get your turn again because there's so much content coming out and being pushed to radio i think what the beauty in this model not that it's the right model or a wrong model, it's just a different model, is that they can trial and error every week if they want to. So you, they can do a cover song and see, well, that got 500,000 views. Not bad. The one we did two weeks ago got 3 million views. Okay, well, maybe our consumer, back to your point, sometimes you don't get to choose the consumer. The consumer is saying, I like that from you. So, okay, we're going to give them more of that. But the frequency, the work ethic to not just, well, here's my beautiful song and I'm going to wait six months before I do something else. It's like they're on, it's like the TV metaphor is great. It's like you've often said Fallon may have a great show. The, <clears throat> the monologue was great that night or maybe it wasn't, but he's going to get another shot the next night and it's probably going to be good because he'll have numbers to go, hmm, that didn't work so well. I'm going to try something different. Or if he was hilarious last night, he better be funny tonight. Yeah, so I think that gives it gives a lot of freedom to artists these days to try as many models as they want, try different things, and not be afraid to fail. I love your sign out there, you know. Dare uh, to suck. Dare to suck. Well, okay, that one was not so good. So we're going to do something better tomorrow. And uh, the freedom of of YouTube, the freedom of the internet, the freedom to... Um, try things Man. as often as you want is for an artist. Oh yeah, my gosh, yeah. that's so free. Incredible. Yeah. Just saying what, the, the thing is so funny is I keep referring it to it as the new model. This was how they did music in the fifties and sixties. You know, the Beatles released rubber soul and revolver in the same year plus four singles and four singles on top of that. That was. The way pop music was built, it really wasn't until Sgt. Pepper's, again, started to be Beatle focus, that it, we, the music industry shifted to an album focus. Album of the year, if you look at the old Grammys, it's only soundtrack albums, jazz albums, or Bob Newhart, like comedy records. Bob Newhart, for comedy record, won album of the year twice with the Grammys. So this kind of album focused, radio focus thing that the, that the, modern music industry has been built on it's it it's really been like the last 40 years i mean so what we're talking about is not it's funny to call it a groundbreaking you know yeah, new it's thing it's half a century it's, old exactly yeah, totally. it's that's the way people used to do music yeah so as we're kind of closing out today uh it's it's a bit of a heavy day in our industry and i want to make sure we give proper um 
respect where respect is due, but our industry lost a pretty substantial leader, and that was Bill Hearn from 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 Capital. Um, I'd love to just kind of close this out with, man, was there a piece of advice or a story that each of you would share that are like this kind of sums up what I learned? Because both of you worked uh, under Bill for. Mm-hmm. Was it 12, 12 years, you said? Oh, for me, longer. Yeah. That was about 16, 17. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a long, long time. So, what, man, just as a you know, tribute to him, what, what was one thing that he kind of left you with? Well, I, I loved Bill. Um, such a mentor to me. I, I loved how he thought about music. I loved how he thought about artists. And eventually where all of that would end up, which was impacting a life. You know, he never lost sight of that. The business models would change. They change all the time. Um, I think what I loved about Bill was he, he fostered an environment where, hey, if you don't think this idea is working, don't be afraid to tell me. Now, you know, some CEOs have such a, you know, a presence that's like, I, I better not say I disagree with because I'll get fired or I'll get, you know, Bill Foster, at least my experience with Bill was, hey, I pay you to not just be a yes man, a yes woman. I want you to give me your ideas. And eventually we may still stick with this direction, but I want to hear from you. And that was so impactful to me um to feel the freedom to uh bring what i had to the table um there's a right time and a wrong time to say those things but that was one thing the other thing i guess for for me i saw bill always looking about four or five years ahead and he always wanted it's like the gretzky you know quote go to where the puck will be kind of thing and I always respected that. He he didn't try to hold on to something that may have been diminishing in either sales or impact. He was always trying to look of where it was headed. And sometimes that required a lot of risk, you know, financial risk, uh, all kinds of risks in that, trying to innovate. Um, but he powered through all of that. And, you know, it was just great to watch him. Um, and gosh, he was king of relationships too. I mean, there, you know, at the end of your life, you, you hopefully are going to be remembered by the people you impacted and the relationships you built. And not that, oh, well, I made the company, you know, $20 million. That's great. No one will remember that. They'll remember, were you good to people? Were you kind? Did you develop people? Bill developed me for 16 years, 17 years, kept pouring into me. And I, that's the legacy I'll always remember with him of, you know, he could have just said, Keep, stay in your place, but he was, no, I want you to develop. I'm going to give you some challenges. And that's, gosh, he was a great mentor. Um, yeah, when I think about Bill Hearn, I just, his, there were, it's really hard to think of something he wasn't brilliant at. I mean, he had such a diverse skill set and, um, and nobody could outwork him. I mean, he just was so driven and, uh, and again, but besides his, his skill set, I remember like trying to go and like, what is, you know, cause he could be in a meeting, a very intimidating presence because he would, um, um, uh, uh, we, we used to joke that you, if you had a meeting with Bill and it, you know, and it went well, that you had what we called the, the Hearn High, you would, you'd be like, Oh, I had a meeting. All oh, right, man. I just want to go home. I, I can't top this. And, you know, I, I, I'm doing okay. But I, I, I think for me personally, if I could drill down, uh, like the thing that, I, and it's really, really hard to do because he was so good at so many things, but I would remember like presenting a marketing plan. And he would just look at me, you know, and this is like pages the way we used to, I mean, like literally like 60, 70 pages of marketing. It was like a college report and, um, and there's a lot of money on the line and, you know, a lot at, at risk. And he would just go, yeah, this all looks good, but how come you didn't do sunset? And he would just say the most simple, obvious thing. 
And I'm like, how did I miss that? How did I, you know, and again, he would say it kind and, you know, um, but, but he, his, he, he was so smart, so intelligent, but he, he wasn't one of these guys that used fancy words. He didn't use catchphrases. He, um, and he had an ability to simplify very complex situations. Again, par- par- probably, because of his relational skills as well. But I just remember going, okay, there's so much going on in the music industry. There's so much to, 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 um, so many distractions. He had an incredible ability to crystallize a challenge into and deconstruct it into the most simple solution or area of focus. And I think that's, um, professionally, um, uh, what I got from him and on a personal level, he was just always so encouraging. I mean, it really is hard to process and believe that this is reality. Um, so it's a, again, a very, very tough day for, um, our industry. So, yeah, well, um, man, great words. It's like a lot of learning experience. I never personally had the uh, opportunity to actually ever interact with him. I think I met him, once backstage at a winter jam or something like that, but um, definitely has left pretty a pretty uh, mammoth hole in, in our in our industry. So thank you for sharing that. And man, just thank you for. I know you guys are busy. I know you guys are out working and changing the world, and um, probably bringing up the next YouTube star that I don't even know about. <laughs> so thanks for taking the time today and uh, y'all are awesome just keep doing what you're doing hi this is Seth Mosley thank you for listening to the show this show is produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Colton Price and next week sadly is our last episode of season one so do not miss that again head over to our website to see what all is going on at Full Circle Music that's fullcirclemusic.com and remember Follow us on Instagram at official FC Music. We'd love uh, to get any direct messages there. Love to connect with you guys. And we will see you on the next and final episode of season one. <laughs>